This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Today, we'll talk about how to make award-winning chocolate and about how to make the world a better place at the same time. Our guest is Sean Askinosi, who was a successful criminal defense lawyer in Springfield, Missouri. For years, Sean loved being an attorney, but finally, he realized that if he didn't change gears, the work would kill him. What Sean did next is inspirational and remarkable. He'll tell us how and why he changed everything. And he'll describe how he's leading a company that makes small batch artisanal chocolate with social responsibility cooked into every bar. Sean, thank you for being with us today. I'm so excited to have you here because I loved your book, Meaningful Work. And we're going to get into that and, and the story of how you created an artisanal chocolate company. But the story of your book and the story of your company is really uh, based on your personal story. And I'm so eager for you to share uh, with us, before we get into chocolate, can you tell us about how it is that you went from being a successful criminal lawyer to uh, a very different kind of vocation? Well, first, thank you for having me, Bev, and I look forward to our conversation as well. And uh, right, so I practiced criminal law for almost 20 years and spent, seems like most of my time either preparing for the courtroom or being in it. And I absolutely loved it. It didn't seem like work to me. I felt called to it. And like many of your listeners, I'm sure, sometimes we wake up and things are different. And that's the way it was for me. I just, um, it wasn't that I just didn't feel like doing it or that I was bored. It's that my body was sending me messages that I couldn't do this anymore, like panic attacks, depression, anxiety. And uh, <clears throat> I tried other areas of the law. Um, even though my specialty was criminal law, I tried to maybe dabble in a little bit of uh, civil trial law, and that didn't go well um, for me. I thought that I could just try something else in the law, and it would still work, and it didn't. So I went on this five-year path, not knowing it was going to be five years. I was still practicing, still trying cases, but just really on a, I would say, a, a um, desperate search that became more desperate by the year uh, to, to find another passion. I was very, um, passionate about my work as a lawyer and I felt inspired by it and called to it. And that was the real challenge for me. I could find other things to do that might seem interesting, but I wasn't sensing a, a flow of inspiration by any of the things that were sort of passing across my, uh, radar. And that was troubling. Then I eventually landed on chocolate and uh, quit my law practice. So in, in your book, you describe your 
uh, career in chocolate as as a vocation. It, it's it's more of a a calling. It's not just a job. Can you tell us the kinds of things uh, you were looking for uh, when you were looking for this kind of of calling or vaca- or vocation, and what were the values, and how did you end up in chocolate? <laughs> the um, what I was looking for, I was looking to make something with my hands, I w- which would be completely different than what I was doing as a lawyer. Um, and so I was looking for something that might be um, something in the making profession that I could manufacture something or make it and hopefully by hand and that it could be some kind of sustainable business. And when the idea of chocolate came to me um, to make it from scratch, I was sort of in the midst of, of starting a hobby. I didn't have any what you would call hobbies while I was practicing law. That seemed like a hobby to me in and of itself. And so I started cooking on the big green egg and grilling and all of that the way a lot of people do. And that led to baking and from baking to chocolate desserts and then ultimately to traveling to the Amazon uh, 15 years ago to see how farmers grow cocoa beans and what they do. And then coming back and, and just winding down my law practice. But I knew then that I wanted to make great tasting chocolate. I knew that I wanted to work directly with farmers. And then once we, uh, maybe in the first weeks of the business, I knew that we wanted to engage students in our neighborhood, in our factory, which we've done through a program called Chocolate University that we started. And... I I knew those things. So I knew that those values, I knew I wanted to practice open book management, which I had done as a lawyer, um, so that people could understand the numbers and we could keep score, so to speak, and then share in the results. So I knew, I knew those things. I knew them in a general sort of way. But, um, if, if you were to say, well, did you know that when you started that you would have a school lunch program that, you know, supported a thousand kids a day? No, I didn't know that stuff. So in many ways, it's just kind of unfolded over time. So it evolved from a more modest idea. Now it feels like you're active on a lot of fronts. And I want to get back to a couple of them, like the, the school programs, which is fascinating. But, but first, just so um, we set the scene here, as I understand it, Eskinosi chocolate is a direct trade bean-to-bar chocolate maker. What does that mean? Direct trade is um, can mean whatever the company wants it to mean. It's not a you know, like a regulated term or a trademark term like fair trade would be, um, which I'm not a fan of. But um, direct trade is something that that really sort of became popularized in the coffee industry and intelligentsia coffee based in Chicago. Uh, one of our biggest customers actually, and, and mentors to me in the early days of direct trade. So I sort of followed in their footsteps of direct trade for coffee and I did it for cocoa beans and they helped me in those beginning days kind of establish, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that I travel to these farms every year myself 
in January, when I go to the Philippines, it'll be my 45th origin trip since I started the company. So I go to the Amazon, Ecuador, Philippines, Tanzania every year. And for us, it means that we are traveling there, that we're looking at the farms, we're inspecting our next crop of cocoa beans. It means that I pay the farmers directly. There are no middlemen. Now, as of two weeks ago, it means that all of the farmers that we work with are exporters themselves. They are the legal exporter of record, and that is a big, big deal. might not sound like it, but it is for smallholder farmers. And it, again, reduces the number of middlemen that have to chip away at money that is inside the supply chain. Um, and so, you know, this is what it means to be direct trade and for us and to manage the quality of the cocoa bean. Um, but bean to bar means that we get those cocoa beans in on a container ship and they arrive by truck to our little factory in Springfield, Missouri. And we roast those cocoa beans and grind the cocoa nibs into a paste, add sugar. We add cocoa butter that we make from scratch. We were the first to do that in the U.S. small batch. And then we make chocolate bars and we sell the chocolate bars to stores around the country and online to people all over. It sounds like you're a company very much uh, built on creating strong relationships with all of your stakeholders, with everybody involved. Is, is part of the way you implement that your open book management? How does that work? Open book management is a way, it's something I practiced as a lawyer. And it meant that everybody in the firm, or in this case, the company, knows where we are financially. So we go over that every week. And, and we make all of those numbers available to people in the company and teach them what they mean. You know, what does gross profit mean? What does um, gross revenue mean? What does net operating income mean? And we follow that. And then, that. and then it means that we set up a bonus program so that people can share in the success if there is any. And what's really unique about our company is that before we started, so now – 14, 15 years ago, I knew that I wanted to kind of take that principle of open book management upstream one notch to the farmers. And I wanted to include them in this practice of open books. And um, at the time, I remember people thinking it was a ludicrous idea um, to include smallholder farmers and make them aware of what the numbers were. But we've done it on every single bean purchase that we've ever made. And we record that on our website. People can see it. They can see what we pay farmers and how that compares to the world market price and fair trade prices and especially the farm gate price. But it means then we share profits with the farmers. So they can see our books, they can see our revenues, and they can see how we are sharing profits with them. So there's an extraordinarily open and it feels like a productive and trusting relationship around the business of chocolate. But you also go beyond that. And you mentioned school lunches earlier. It, it feels like among your stakeholders are, are the communities. You get involved with um, the children in the communities where the beans are grown. Can you tell us a bit about those kinds of programs? You bet. The My chocolate factory is located in a part of Springfield, Missouri, that is over the years, been in the midst of revitalization. There tends to be a great deal of poverty around uh, the neighborhood of our factory. And so we wanted to engage the kids of the neighborhood 
We have an elementary school, middle school, middle school summer school program, and a high school program uh, for the kids in and around Springfield, Missouri. And again, we're only 17 people in my whole company. It's a family business that I run with my daughter, Lauren, who's the co-author in the book with me. And the design, we want it to be small. um, And I write about that and talk about that a lot. But so we wanted to engage these kids and really inspire them to two things. One, that business can be a force for good in the world. And two, there's a world beyond Springfield, Missouri. And we've done this for years. We've done it since we started in our very first um, when our first chocolate bar was sold in 2007, we started this chocolate university program and the high school program is especially intense. It's a business immersion program. And we just completed our selection of our 2020 candidates. These are juniors and seniors in local high schools. And there's 15 of them. Eight of them are full scholarship. It costs $4,000 a student. The remaining six are private pay. And they spend time during the spring semester meeting with us, um, talking about Tanzania. And then in the summer, they spend a week on the nearby university campus um, getting to know each other because these are all students from different schools. They study our business model, profit sharing, uh, Tanzania language, culture, history, that sort of thing. They go home and pack and meet me at the airport, and we take them to Tanzania for a truly uh, transformative experience and business immersion in the true sense of the word. And um, I'm still in touch. In fact, just 10 minutes ago, I talked to one of our students from 2009, 10 years ago. He's a lawyer in St. Louis now, and and he's, this is so cool. And he is leading a um, scholarship program for alumni to fund one of the $4,000 scholarships. Isn't that oh, cool? that's wonderful. 10 years ago. I mean, and that's, I'm telling you, that is some serious full circle for me. That's terrific. To think that this guy was a high school student, you know, in our neighborhood 10 years ago, and now here he is, a lawyer in St. Louis, um, helping other young people follow in his footsteps. So that's, in a nutshell, kind of how we do this Chocolate University program. And then we're involved in communities, as you mentioned. So we have uh, a school lunch nutrition program in Tanzania that we just completed. And then we've we've started three uh, programs in the Philippines. And right now we're in a school feeding about 400 kids a day. We monitor the height and weight of these kids and their school attendance. These are kids who are malnourished. And every child in the school will eat with us providing the funding with zero outside donations. And we fund it by selling a product called Tablia, which is a hot chocolate um, Filipino drink. And, um, and so anyway, we've, we've done this for years. We also have an after-school program in Tanzania for middle school and secondary school students. And we were looking at the numbers the other day, and since we've started all of these programs, we've touched the lives of almost 7,000 children in Tanzania and Springfield, Missouri. Um, so we have empowered girls after school program in Tanzania, enlightened boys, all to help girls know that they're, um, worth something, that they're not property, uh, that they can have self-esteem life skills, uh, that they have the right to say no. These are all really very important concepts. Um, we have a feminine hygiene program there. So the girls can go to school when it's that time of the month and we provide, um, 
these hygiene products and underwear for the girls. And um, these are just, it's just part of what we do as a company. It sounds like a wonderful company. And it's a, it's an amazing vocation, going back to that word. In the book, you describe the business and all of the community around the business, but it's also a very personal book. You talk about how this is not just a business vocation. It's a personal vocation, and and it's something that um, you had to, to work to find and to maintain. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by a personal uh, vocation and and how it can be linked to a work vaca- vocation and and how how is it that if listeners are out there and they just have a job they want something more how do you find your personal vocation the um, objection your honor that's a compound question uh-huh. um um, you know these are great these are these are these are great questions and so let's start with personal vocation i i think that that we're all called to something and that the something can change throughout our lives and i think this is true for high school students um and for the rest of our lives uh until we die And so I think it can be, as I said, I think it can change over time. Obviously your vocation as a junior in high school will not be the same as when you're um, 70. Um, But if we're aware that this calling and this pull um, to compassion and kindness in our lives can change, then we can watch for it and we can, we can, we can check for it. And, um, but the key is how do we find it in the first place so we know what it feels like? And that's one of the things I do my best to describe in the book because the book isn't the Sean Askinosi story. But I use some of the some of the experiences that I've had to hopefully um, present in a way that other people can see themselves. And what I'm encouraging people to do as they think about their personal vocation is um, – to know what it feels like, as Joseph Campbell would say, to be joyfully alive. That's what people want. Even though the title of my book is Meaningful Work, I mean, people want meaning, yes, but what they really want is they want to know what it feels like to be joyfully alive. And if you don't know, not you, but if your listeners don't know what that feels like, then I, I, I would encourage them to really reflect on that and see if they can um, check the memory banks of their days and years of past and when they have felt that. And if they haven't, then, then we need to have a talk. We need to, we need to have a talk because, um, why not? And I, I think that there's this connection between feeling joyfully alive and I believe a connection between that and our heartbreak and our sorrow. And we've all experienced it in some fashion, and we will experience it. And I believe that there's a, a, a direct correlation between our calling, our vocation, the knowing of what it feels like to be joyfully alive, and the depth of our sorrow. And so, you know, if, if a person is willing 
to plumb the bottom of this as deep as they can, then I think they will be rewarded um, by a an interior exploration that will produce and yield um, the results of calling and vocation in ways that they might not have imagined. I'm not saying that people can't have a nice career and a good professional life without doing these things. Of course they can. I, I happen to believe though that um, if, we're, if we're going to find this place of mutuality with others, find a place of kinship, that we might not be able to do it without some variation of what I'm talking about. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. An inspiring part of the book is when you talk about your path to really understanding and getting into these issues and exploring the very depth of your life and experience. When you describe these things, part of what intrigued me is the way a monastery has played a role in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and and maybe a monastery is not for everybody but what are the things from the monastery uh, experience that might help other people if they can find their comparable path sure the for me the monastery that we're speaking of it's about an hour and a half from my house it's in the mark twain national forest and it's a trappist monastery so it's a Catholic monastery. I'm not Catholic, but um, I have been going there for a little over 20 years on retreat um, to spend time in solitude, some silence, prayer, meditation, and just walking around <laughs> and looking at the trees and the rivers. And I've, I've done this for a long time. And it's it's uh, a... It's an anchor in my life. I've changed as many churches as you can imagine in the last. I've probably gone to every church in my town. I've recently kind of come back to the one of my childhood, the Episcopal Church nearby where I was confirmed near my factory, actually. But but you're right. No, it doesn't have to be a monastery or it could be a Buddhist monastery for those who are listening who are maybe attracted to some other faith tradition. Or it could be just a place um, of silence and solitude. It doesn't have to be a religious institution at all. For me, it just happens to be that. And <clears throat> I've deepened my relationship with this monastery. So in the last, I guess, maybe five years ago, almost six years ago now, I became a family brother 
at this monastery. And so what it means is that I um, wrote a rule of life that they had to approve, and it's loosely based on the rule of Benedict. And when I travel to the monastery, I now I don't stay in the guest house as a retreatant. I stay in the monastery uh, cloister. So I live with the monks and I follow their schedule, get up at three o'clock in the morning for the first prayer service. There are seven in a day and I work when I'm there. And I don't mean like work on spreadsheets or whatever. I do manual labor. I clean the kitchen or mop the floors. And, and this has taught me a lot over the years. I have a spiritual director there, a priest that is now 88 years old and he's been my spiritual director and friend for uh, nearly or over 20 years. And so, um, I'll be buried there. I'll be cremated and I'll be buried at that monastery. And, um, it's just, uh, it's kind of, it's my place. And the things that I've learned that I talk about in the book are, um, one of the chapters that I have is called how much is enough. And this is something I've learned from the monastery. They make fruit cakes for their survival. That's how they, they live. And so they sell them all over the country and, and William Sonoma, I guess, is maybe their biggest buyer of their fruitcakes. But anyway, they make enough fruitcakes to survive. That's it. And so I'm very intrigued by this notion of a sufficiency economy. What is sufficient? And I know it's a moving target, and I know I, that my business isn't a monastery. But I try to deploy some of the monastic traditions in my business, this being one of them, and in my life. How much is enough? And, and uh, it, it was different when I was 30, and I, and I understand that. But what I'm asking for here is just awareness, just even asking the question among ourselves, you know, what, how much do we need? And you might think, well, don't you want people to buy your chocolate bars? <laughs> That's consumption. Well, yes, it is. But I, I, I encourage mindful consumption. I mean, we're not growing at, you know, massive rates in my business, and, and we don't want to. These are things I've learned from the monastery. And, of course, um, just the rule of life and how it fits into my daily life. And that has, I would say that it's, uh, that monastery and the people in it have played maybe the biggest role of anyone in my life so far. I enjoyed the way you spoke of the rule of life, your rule of life. And I I. Th- thought that it was a really useful way to to talk about how people can define their values and at the same time structure the activities of their life around uh, their values. Can you tell us a little bit about how how you articulate your rule of life, how you how you visit it, use it, how it helps to give you structure? The the rule of life is um, a document that over time has come to some revision. But in the beginning, this was a document that I needed to submit to the monastery and to the abbot uh, and others for their review and approval. And it has to do with a commitment. So if you kind of think of it as a promise to your community. And this is why it doesn't have to be a monastery. Here's what I think, though. 
we need community. And I don't mean Facebook. It can be, I guess, but that's not what I mean. We need a depth of community, and that community must have some kind of human connection to it so that we can exercise our, our muscle of kindness and compassion. We must have community. And, and it doesn't need to be a faith-based community. I'm just saying that it is for me and for many others. But I think it's coming. I think the need for it is now more perhaps than it has been in the last hundred years. And so what this rule of life is, is a promise to the community. And it's saying, I'm not perfect. I don't aspire to perfection. In fact, I'm, I'm weak. And here are some weaknesses that I have. And here are some places where I hope to be held accountable. Um, and the rule of life sort of sets up this promise uh, in a sort of preamble. And then the why of I'm, why am I making this promise? Why am I making a commitment to live my life in this way? And then I, in, in my own particular rule, set forth some areas that I want to really address specifically. So of prayer, study, enjoyment, so fun and work and hospitality. These are all things that I want to include in my you know, daily, weekly, monthly life. And so I have a schedule in my rule of this is what I aspire to do during the day and during my week and annually. And then this is signed by me and the abbot. And then I try to live it out, knowing that it's going to fail more than it's not. <laughs> But it's a thing I, I do and revisit. In fact, I'm, I'm literally in the midst of a final revision to my rule and answering questions from the monastery as we speak, because in the next few weeks, I'll be making a, what's called a life commitment so, um, to the Abbey and to that, to that community. And, but anybody can do this. And you can look in my book or others that um, talk about this kind of thing. But I think it's a great way for us to um, hold ourselves accountable for how we want to live our lives. I, I think it's a wonderful way to do that. And having a contract with myself is, is uh, I guess, having been a lawyer is how I think of it from time to time. I like uh, your concept of rule of life better. It's a, it's a, it's a, gentler, and also, I think, a more descriptive way of um, getting at the, the values and how we live those values. And I totally agree with you that, that part of a fulfilling life is, is connections with community. It's, it's just something that people need. But I also noticed that when you were talking about the path that you traveled as you were finding and defining your vocation— one of the parts of it that you discovered at the monastery was silence. I, I thought it was amusing as you described your your very first trip to the monastery. You said you'd never been alone before. And I think being alone is part of how people do uh, find their values. But truly, did you mean you'd never been alone before? And that's one of the things that helped you um, reach your... Um, 
calling? What was that time alone? Um, yes, uh, and not al- I hadn't been alone in a place that really prided itself on not just solitude but silence. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in, this is this is post Vatican II. So this monastery is not a silent monastery. They talk, uh, but not a lot. And there are times when they don't talk. But but um, but it's sparse. <laughs> and so, um, but it maybe was the first time for any extended period where I was actually in solitude and silence combined. And it was something that was valued by the place and where the ground that I was occupying had been a place of silence and solitude and candidly holiness for decades. So I could feel it and, and, and I could feel that it was important to be a part of it, but it also was very frightening to me because, um, when you don't have, and even when I started, they're really, they don't have the internet there. They didn't have it when I started and they don't have it now. Um, and there's no cell signal. So, um, in the, in those early days, I brought all the books I could fit in my suitcase. I, I, I would literally go for just four days and probably bring 10 books. <laughs> and so, uh, because I needed them, you know, I needed the crutch of a book or something. Now I try to go with my Bible and that's it. And, um, but in those days, it, and, and even to, even now, you know, it's different every time I go, because when we're alone with nothing but our thoughts and things are going on in our lives that are challenging and difficult. Maybe it could be our own health concerns or relationship concerns or the health of our loved ones. And it, when we're alone and we, the, the monkey mind has a chance to sort of trick us and fool us and, and talk to us in our own voice and whisper things that we should fear, it's hard because we are literally by ourselves uh, in this kind of a place. But I think it's important that we learn to, that we learn to um, rest in these places, even though it can be challenging at times. And we, we, if we do this enough, we can build um, awareness into these experiences and not have expectations of agenda points that need to happen, but we can just um, be with them. And this is what I've gained as I look over the arc of my time going there for 20 years. It's not the same. It's never the same each time. And there have been times when I've gone when I've really needed some answers, you know, and I've need or I've needed some relief from anxiety or just health concerns of my own. And it's not, not happened the way I wanted it to, but, but it happened the way it should. And so now um, I'm ready for the unexpected. And um, it's, it's very comforting to me. And, but if I could tell you the context of why the Abbey is important to me, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yes, please. So, and, and this relates to the other part of your question, which is um, really underlying all of this. Um, and how did I, how, how, how did this have anything to do with chocolate and the coming on of my vocation? So, 
as I take a deep breath. Um, my dad died when I was 14 and he was a lawyer too. And, uh, he had cancer and, um, he was my hero and I was involved in his caregiving cause my mom couldn't give him pain shots. So I did that when I was 13 and, um, it was just a, a really traumatic experience and he had lung cancer and it went all over his body. And anyway, but the weekend that he died, he was at this monastery on a men's church retreat. And, um, I mean, as many people with cancer, I mean, he was walking around the week he died he tried a case in court the week before he died. And, uh, but the cancer had gone to his brain and, um, he came home from that monastery and died that night. Well, at the funeral, his priest said, Sean, I want to tell you something. When um, he said the last night we were there, this would have been like three days before the funeral. He said, um, your dad knocked on the door of my room about 10 PM. And he said, Don, he said, um, I wasn't dreaming, but I was just visited by three angels. He said, I wasn't asleep. I was praying in my room and I was just visited. And the three angels said that I was going to die, that everything would be okay, and that my family would be protected. And then he spent the night and came home and died. Well, as a 14-year-old, that story meant nothing to me. I didn't care about that. I wanted my dad back. And I didn't even really even think about that for 25 years. Well, one thing led to another 25 years later, and I, I needed to go to that monastery. And so I did. And that's why this place has meant so much to me, because it was where my dad spent the last night of his life. Well, now I've been going there for 20 years. And absolutely, there were things that happened to that monastery that led to my vocation I don't think I've ever even talked about this before. But one day when I was walking at the monastery, walking and meditating, this thought of mine came to me that I should perhaps volunteer in the palliative care department of a local hospital. So it's like hospice in the hospital, people who are dying. And so I started doing that. And I started volunteering in the hospital. On Fridays, I would go visit people all over the hospital who were in, who had asked for a visitor. These were people often who had nobody. But they were dying, and they were in oncology, cardiology, neurology, wherever. Sometimes there would be three or four patients to visit, sometimes 15. And I would just go talk with them about whatever, anything, just visit. But the, I concluded my visits by asking them if they wanted me to pray for them. And most people who are dying will take a prayer. And I would ask them, what would you like me to pray for? Well, that opened up a whole other discussion. And then I took their words that they said, and I, I literally repeated them back to them in their prayer. You know, pray, would you pray that I'm healed? Would you pray that I die today? Would you pray that I live a couple of more weeks to my wedding anniversary? I did whatever that I prayed, whatever they asked. I put my hand on their hand. I'd ask them if I could, you know, touch them and, or touch their shoulder Sometimes I would kneel down next to their bed and pray this prayer. And I would say those are some of the few moments in my life when I actually thought about somebody else besides me up to that point. And we all are guilty of that. 
And I'd been looking out for myself, you know, trying to find a vocation, trying to find something to do. I was, I was doing this as a lawyer and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just happened into this, but I happened into it from a, a notion that came to my mind while I was at the Abbey. And well, I would walk out of those hospital doors some days, not every day, some days thinking I could fly. Like my feet weren't on the ground. They were two or three feet above the ground. Not literally, but that's what they felt like. And so I did it for almost five years. And those were some of the greatest days of my life, even to this day. And why? Because Khalil Gibran says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And I, I believe that, that that's what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation. It leads to these places of creativity that we could never imagine if we can touch the place of heartbreak in our own lives. And, and not just once, but daily. And not run away from it, but to be gentle and kind to it and with it. Sean, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your story. And I, I want to um, mention to listeners that your book, Meaningful Work, is um, it's both interesting and inspiring uh, without um, being too woo-woo or scary. It's a, it's a wonderful story as well as uh, a guide to maybe making a shift I have just one more question for you. Mm-hmm. As I as I was listening to you now, I was just feeling sure that that out there there's a listener who is just aching to get out of the rat race, to get out of a a, a job that seems to never stop, and to to move toward some kind of vocation and 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 that listener is listening to you and thinks I want to get started in a new direction and I want to start right now if that listener is is out there hearing your voice do you have any suggestion for something that can be done today to start moving in a new direction yes a step away from the google search box right now get away from it b look around and see who needs you and i promise you that somebody needs your broken heart they need you roll up your sleeves and begin serving that person or that small group of people without expecting anything in return And you will be living the life that Gandhi talked about when he said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. This is where clarity happens. This is where peacefulness ultimately resides. And I encourage people who are saying, what's the one thing that I can do? The one thing that you can do is open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart, look around, see who needs you, roll up your sleeves, and don't wait. Thank you, Sean. That's wonderful guidance. And I so appreciate your joining me here today on Jazz About Work. Thank you, Bev. It's been great talking with you. Today, we've been talking with artisanal chocolate maker, Sean Asknozzi, 
about how he weaves social responsibility into every aspect of his business. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's career tip is that there's a difference between having a job and seeking your vocation. When you do discover your vocation, it'll feel more like a calling and you'll find satisfaction and even the most routine parts of your work life. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed our show, please tell your friends. Thank you.